For much of his life, Alan Shaheen had no desire for a career in the technology industry. But as time passed, and thanks to some helpful nudges from his parents, much like peanut butter and jelly, Alan and technology naturally gravitated toward one another. Today, Alan serves as the Executive Vice President of Digital Engineering at Cognizant, a company he has been with for almost 15 years. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Alan talks about his evolving relationship with technology, how companies are adapting to and embracing technology more than ever, and why reinvesting in STEM programs is the only way to ensure a prosperous future. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, Alan, what's going on? A lot is going on right now. There's a lot of clients that are out there trying to figure out how they manage through the current crisis. And we're pretty fortunate that they turned to us at Cognizant to help them figure that out. So we've been pretty busy lately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it is definitely an all hands on deck kind of a moment here. Um, and we want to get into every everything that you're doing at Cognizant uh, for your clients and then also hear a little bit about you. So how did you get started in technology? It, it was actually by accident. Um, you know, my parents sort of insisted that I go into something that would make sure I got a job and wouldn't go back home after college. And I grew up in a time where engineering was the big deal. Uh, the U.S. was trying to get a, uh, a man on the moon. And so they said, look, if you're an engineer, you'll have a good income and we won't have to support you. So go into that. And so tell me a little bit about your current role as EVP. Well, my role in Cognizant right now is really to help us expand our digital engineering capability across the company. Right now, digital engineering is one of the more critical things that we're helping clients with because if you look at the changing demographics that our clients are working with, the customers that they engage with, it's a lot of digital natives at this point. The baby boomer generation used to be the primary consumer base. Now it is those digital natives. They have a very high expectation on service levels, convenience, et cetera. And so they expect the organizations that serve them to have convenient, anytime, anywhere kind of access to their products and services. And so a lot of our clients are really working their way through that. How do we engage with this new consumer base effectively? A lot of it is through software um, and different than IT, this is software product engineering rather than IT projects. And that's something new for a lot of clients. They, they know how to do IT projects, but doing something that is truly a software product that is in that new consumer base is something new. So they turn to us, Cognizant, to really help them sort through that, not just in creating those products, but in actually helping them figure out 
how to now do some of those product engineering practices, get them integrated into their organization. And who are the types of folks are you working with? Are you working with mostly CIOs, CTOs? What are what are the what are the folks that are doing these projects? It, it's a full spectrum, right? And some of these research that we've done shows that ninety percent plus of CIOs believe that digital software product engineering is going to be critical to the success of their business. So a lot of it is with CIOs. Then there are the CTOs, and then there's Uh, chief data officers that are also very interested in how do you deal with data security and privacy on the cloud? How do you do data modernization? And how do you build an effective data infrastructure? More and more, of course, we're dealing with the sales and marketing organizations, product managers within the business organizations of our clients, because what we're building now are really go-to-market types of products. And so it really is critical that you have that proper business context, that you have that buy-in from the user community, from the business community, and that there is a clear definition of what you are trying to build for clients, the business value that they're supposed to be getting and how things work out in terms of the final product and how it impacts them from a market standpoint. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I would be curious to see, you know, what all of those roles kind of look like in five years, the the CIO, CTO, CDO kind of uh, triangle there, uh, throwing a dash of of CISO for fun, of how those things merge and and mold and and change from company to company. Well, It's very interesting, of course, because there are different cycles that business go through. And in the past, you've had different flavors of CIOs where you go through a period that is all about cost management and you get that flavor of CIO. And then you get into a place where we have been recently where it's all about revenue creation. How do you expand the numerator? And that is more of a creative uh, type CIO, market-facing CIO, et cetera. One of the things, though, that I think is coming down the road is the notion of a chief product officer. As clients start to look at building products, in addition to having their internal IT needs, if you will, and the whole notion of product management is starting to become more and more ubiquitous across organizations, not just in their traditional product teams and having product managers that work on the business side, but having product managers that are also on the technology and IT side to help guide both business owners and IT development users and and engineers into building the kind of products that are needed in the market. So let's talk about kind of the current day and age here, obviously with COVID kind of changing how business is, is done right this second. We have no idea what the future will, will hold. And uh, I know I'm definitely not qualified to, to progn- prognosticate on, on what that holds, but it's, it's unprecedented and companies are struggling. What are you hearing from, from your clients? Right now, many companies are still struggling with their priorities. Because typically in a situation like this, and 
I lived through the 2008, 2009 calamity, and then there was uh, post 9-11 and, you know, 2001 and so forth. And at that time, what people did immediately is just hunker down, stop all discretionary spending, just focus on what's core to keep things going, reduce costs, conserve cash, et cetera. Well, obviously, there's a lot of that that's going on at the same time as we are seeing something very different. So people are really going through a fine tooth comb on their projects and identifying we've got to have this just to keep the business running. But what they're also starting to see is those discretionary projects are equally critical because now you have to have a very different way of maintaining revenue and expanding revenue. You have to have a different way of fulfillment, of managing your supply chains. Those have been lately discretionary spends to try to get different software products in place, online, et cetera. But COVID has made it such that they're now absolutely critical. If you are a retailer without an online presence, if you are a traditional retailer with an on-prem footprint only, then you're in a very difficult position. Many of our clients who have online e-commerce have seen their traffic increase by three times what it is or what it was just a month, month and a half ago. And that's three times what they see on peak in holiday season. So it's a pretty amazing story that's taking place right now. It's really, how do you do virtual sales? How do you do virtual fulfillment? How do you now get to a place where our workforce can be productive in an environment that we've never envisioned before. And there's one other nuance that I would add because people talk about virtual and they talk about distributed development and distributed product development and so forth, distributed workforces. But folks say, look, we've done global delivery, we've done remote delivery, we've got virtual teams, et cetera, but it's different this time because when you do global development or global product delivery, it's often been team to team connection. Now we're in a place where it's very atomic. It's person to person to make it work. And we've never really done that before at the scale that we're seeing it now. So what we often do is help our clients figure out how it is that you create the infrastructure that supports that, and then how do you create the collaboration tools, the rituals, the processes that make that work. And so what would you say are some of those, those things, some of those processes, some of those, um, those types of things that people can, you know, look at their organization right now and figure out how to start, you know, changing for a potential, uh, you know, new normal or, or something like that? Well, some of the basic things that you have to do is just continue to maintain some of the basic processes that you had before, but just do them in a virtual environment. At Cognizant, we're fortunate because we went virtual years ago. We put in place a video infrastructure. We learned some of the basic sort of rules of engagement and protocols and so forth about how to do things virtually, digitally, and so forth. And so people just need to figure out, okay, what are the processes that we have 
from a collaboration standpoint. And we do those today. You've got regular stand-up meetings. <clears throat> You've got regular communication meetings. They might have been done historically in direct person-to-person -person meetings or via teleconference. Well, now you've got to work them through in a video mode, but you keep them going, right? You don't all of a sudden say, well, the world is different, so let's stop doing our daily meetings. You do the daily meetings, but in a different way. And the other thing that's very important is you maintain the social aspects of work. Um, when everybody is together in an office, it's not just the production work, if you will, that people are doing. They're also talking to each other, exchanging ideas, keeping the workplace vibrant. And so we do things like virtual coffee breaks, okay, or virtual discussion sessions. We've had things where we do virtual yoga sessions to help people chill out as they're going through this crisis. Virtual bring your child to work day. And so all of these things help people navigate from one type of action, one type of work model, and maintaining some of those structures, but in a very different way, and adding a human element to it so people feel more comfortable. And it isn't this new normal, but it's actually an extension and an improvement of the previous normal. You spent 14 plus years at Cognizant. I'm curious, like how have things changed from, from the time you joined to now? It's been dramatic because when I first joined Cognizant, the primary focus of the organization was all about helping our clients save costs, operational excellence, and so forth, things like that. It was focused, if you will, on shrinking the denominator, okay? And that was something we were very good at, we continue to be very good at, but it was very sort of hands-on intensive. Since that time, there's been a lot of automation, a lot of improvement in the bandwidth of networks and so forth. There's been a lot of improvement in processes, lean uh, development capabilities, lean operations and so forth a lot of productivity tools that have come out. And so it's been a lot more productive on the cost saving side. But what's also become the new normal is global access and global delivery. 14 years ago, the notion of outsourcing to places like India, Latin America, and so forth were thought of as somewhat risky, new. People didn't know how to engage with different cultures in that way on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you determine what is an absolute commitment in terms of time and length and scope of a project? They had to learn it along the way, and we helped them figure out that stuff. The world has now moved to a place where, as I said before, how do you create new opportunities? How do you help us grow in a different way? How do you help us absorb this new modern enterprise that's fully digitized, dealing with the new market. And that's a whole different thought process. Whereas operational excellence is all about a rigorous structure of run books and point by point definition of processes and execution of the processes. The current work that we're doing in product development now has a very interactive, iterative, um, agile capability to it. And 
it's not a linear thing where you go from A to B to C. It's something where you circle around things, you do a draft of something, you rip it apart, you do the next draft, etc. And it's more of a continuous process of engagement with the market, the business community, and then as you get into it with the development community to help them get at the deliveries that they need and developing the products that they need. How do you look at building a culture that encourages experimentation and innovation? Well, this is one of the critical things that we have done recently over the past couple of years is building our services and our talent model around what we call guilds and communities. And historically, we've been organized by hierarchical product and project-based models. Now what we've done is we said, look, it's all about the talent. And today's talent is really interested in learning, continuous learning, being with others that have similar interests, career aspirations, and so forth. So what we've done is looked at how you build the kind of IT projects and software products and detailing out what are those specific capabilities that you need, be it full stack engineers, be it architects, be it designers, et cetera. And we have reorganized ourselves into communities of these capabilities. And so it's at an atomic capability level. This really gives people the opportunity to engage with others that have that interest. And so that has been a really cool thing that we've done. In addition to that, we have created a network of studios that are, again, built for creative kinds of work. The environment is such that it's very vibrant. We give people, in effect, lots of different tools, both virtual, digital, as well as some physical tools to have them work together and simulate different possibilities, different solutions. One of my favorite things that we have in our studios is the workshop. And the workshop is just that. We've got drills, we've got presses, we've got equipment and materials so that people can start to work on models of what they want to deliver and what we need to deliver for clients. But that creates this sense of innovation, collaboration, and so forth. In addition to that, we make sure that there is constantly opportunities available for people to take classes, get certification. We encourage that all the time. We pay for certifications and so forth, things, uh, things like that. We also set up our metrics in such a way that people know that learning is part of what you're supposed to do, that we give people incentives to create assets that are reusable, to work together in teams, and so forth. And our processes are organized to help folks do that. So those are some of the things that we do to basically incent things around innovation. How do you think other technology leaders could kind of replicate some of those things to have that level of, uh, you know, that community aspect, uh, the community-based capacity? Well, the first thing is you've got to get into that mindset and you have to understand the nature of the talent base that's out there, 
what it is that's really important to that talent base. One of the things that I will tell you that has changed significantly is that as we're doing interviews today with talent, one of the questions that we get almost in every interview is what are you doing for the public good? What is your green strategy or policy? How are you enabling the local community where you exist and helping in that regard? So these are some of the things that people are now asking questions about that they didn't before. And so we've got a number of programs within Cognizant, one of which is called the Outreach Program. It enables local studios to get connected to the communities that they're in and participate in social activities for good. We have um, the Cognizant U.S. Foundation that invests in nonprofit organizations to help them um, expand the U.S. workforce, uh, get folks that don't necessarily have access to technology into the technology workplace. And we keep a record of our green policies. We make sure that we measure how we're doing on energy savings year by year. And we put that as a critical thing that we do. The second is really, again, getting into those communities of similar interest. Organizations have them already. It's just that they are now in a place where they're dispersed across the company. You've got to get these folks together into structured organizations and give them a place and the tools to interact and engage with each other. Thirdly, what you've got to be able to do is make sure that the tools are there for these groups to connect with one another. And it's not just about the technology collaboration tools, but again, it's about the environment where they sit and operate and so forth. Then there are the incentives to encourage learning, to encourage thought leadership pieces, to encourage people to just create assets that, uh, that are reusable. Again, those are the types of things that we would say to folks. Finally, oftentimes it's hard for people to accept this, but they really have got to distance themselves from the previous model and to create literally new real estate that has a different mindset, look and feel, et cetera, and think about how you're going to bring some of your existing people into that new mindset, into that new environment, and make sure that they are trained properly, motivated properly, and then add to that group essentially a new breed of talent that will help shape the direction on a go-forward basis. I want to talk about some of the STEM initiatives that you all have done. Um, you kind of started to mention you know, how important this is. Like, Why is this something that you really want to carry the torch on? There's a couple of aspects to it, and this is where Cognizant has always been a very giving organization. We've got in India uh, a foundation, and that foundation is really there to give back to the local communities in India. We do over a million volunteer hours, our workforce does in India, from helping to teach kids in local schools about math to things like helping uh, to set up clinics and so forth. A lot of great work that's done there. In the United States, we recently 
couple of years ago, set up the Cognizant U.S. Foundation to help enable those that don't typically have access to technology and technology jobs to give them greater access to enable them by training, to give them support through access to coaches and mentors that come from the Cognizant um, Enterprise Organization, and then to get them into a network of potential employers. Why we did this was, one, it's in our nature. Two, it's the right thing to do to be part of the community that you live in and work in. And three, if you look at the gap in talent in the United States, today there's about 600,000 open jobs in technology that can't be served. That number is growing at a pace of probably 100,000 or more a year. If that continues, you can see what's happening. An economy that the United States has been driven by innovation for decades. And then we're going to get to a place if we don't bridge this talent gap where we can no longer fuel our innovation in the same way. And so those are the three reasons why we do it. We've come up with some very innovative ways to expand the technology gap to get more and more people into technology from different communities. And what we find is amazing is there are these great sources of talent that have been fundamentally underrepresented because they're just a little bit harder to access or they don't have the same knowledge of what opportunities are available and don't have the, the doors open to them that others might. Do you feel that like as you're doing these these sort of initiatives, you know, some of the the lead or the example that you're setting is something that, you know, others could easily follow or plug into? Because I know that that's a lot of the problem is people don't necessarily know where to start. I'll tell you that it's easy to start, okay? You don't have to have a foundation that is endowed by a corporation or set of corporations to really get things going. You will find that if you've got great talent and in order to attract great talent, you create a network that the organization can basically supply basic infrastructure, make sure that all you do is know where do we have our offices, what are the volunteer organizations that are there, the social good organizations that are there, and make the connections. We invite different people from Goodwill, for example, to come into our offices, talk about what they're doing. Girls Who Code, we will sponsor um, young women who are interested in technology to be at our site for a summer. We will do things like connect with just food uh, and shelter programs. I remember when one of the hurricanes hit in Texas uh, a couple of years ago, our teams just got together, did a food drive, carried it over to the places that were still without power. All you've got to do is set it up, organize it a little bit, and you'll find that the community takes over. Um, the, the talent that you have takes over. There is more and more interest just to be part of the place where you live and work, not just to be part of an organization. People now see work and life bridged and they see the companies and businesses that are in the community 
as really an integral part of the community, not a separate and distinct piece that is profit generating. And that's it. Before COVID, um, it kind of seems like we have this before and after kind of time period right now. But before that, what what were some of the biggest challenges or maybe one particular challenge that you dealt with over the last handful of years that your team had to work through? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think it's, it's been for people to understand that technology is not just this thing that's out there that you have to deal with because you just do. It's not that technology is this very mystical, um, difficult to use, difficult to understand thing that's out there. People have now come to the belief that technology is fully integrated into what we do on a day-to-day basis. That's new, okay? It used to be technology was a necessary evil. You use it because you have to. It saves you money. Well, now getting people to the place where they see it as not just it saves you money, but it is an extension of how you live. It makes your life more convenient, more successful, healthier. It allows you to be more social. It allows you to connect with friends, even though there might be a great distance. It gives you productivity tools that help you in your family life and in your personal life. Really getting people to make that mental switch was not easy. And it only happened once there had been a significant infrastructure that had been put in place. And once you got some really great products that were just easy to use and they just became a natural extension of a person's life rather than something that you had to wedge in by force. What about a particular, you know, client that you've been working with over the past few years that overcame the odds or or kind of worked through a challenge and and had a huge success? Well, there are a number that have done that. Um, And a lot of it stems from the fact that, you know, when I first joined 14 years ago, you know, there was this notion of waterfall methodologies where you would go from point A to point B. And then, you know, once you did the user requirements, you would do the design. And then once you did the design, you do the architecture, et cetera, et cetera. And it was very, very linear. And a number of clients, we have been able to help them get to a place that is much more customer centric and much more agile in its delivery model. You know, the idea here is that if you just stay focused on what the client needs, on what the user needs, on what the market needs are, then you can get the requirements very quickly and you try to connect up with as few hops as possible what the need is with how you convert the need into reality. So you create joint teams of business users and technology specialists and they work in an iterative fashion, in a very agile fashion They build something, they get it out there, then they go again, they build something new, and they get that out into the market again. And the time cycles become very quick. You know, every two weeks, every four weeks, you get something new out to the market. It's continuous innovation, continuous development, continuous delivery. And people have to go from a mindset of it's got to be perfect before it gets in the hands of 
my end user to speed is important and dynamic feedback is important. And as long as you can be responsive, then it really becomes a virtuous circle. Whereas before, when things were too separate, you had mistrust between the user community and the development technology community, and it became a vicious circle. So what we've helped clients with is to go from that IT separate model into a market-driven, dynamic, agile model with continuous innovation, continuous delivery. What about the public-private relationship? Like, this is something that is obviously with the with the current crisis, like changing rapidly. But how do you think that public-private partnerships will will change for for technology? So. I'm going to go back to the foundation and some of the lessons that we learned there. We have got in the United States a fantastic higher educational system. The colleges and universities are world class. When you get into the public educational system, there's a big gap. And I'm not going to go into that in a lot of detail, but the reality is that we are not producing the kind of people that we need into the technology fields and into the jobs of the future. That's not the fault of the people. You've got great talent, but the systems and educational structures that we put in place are from decades ago and they no longer fit. And so what's happened is that gap is getting greater. And so private enterprise is jumping in and helping to create new structures. And those new structures are some of the traditional things that you would expect How do you do internships? Uh, How do you sponsor different schools and so forth? So that has become more commonplace. But even beyond that, you're starting to see a cottage industry develop that is training-based. And what happens is you start to get private institutions working with community colleges, working with other educational institutions, and they will create joint curricula that is targeted specifically for jobs that they are interested in. And so the output of these organizations, these institutions now becomes a job-ready workforce rather than someone with a broad degree that can you know, essentially make them more interesting at a cocktail party, but doesn't necessarily get them into the workforce as easily as they could otherwise. Uh, And so we're we're just seeing a lot of our clients jumping into this. We've jumped into that. That's part of why we put the foundation in place. You've written in the past about confrontational consensus. What is this? There are different organizational decision-making models, right? Some is sort of the top-down hierarchical model where there's a defined leader and that leader decides and everybody else does, okay? That actually works. Um, You know, in large organizations like the military, it works. Then there are the the organizations that are consensus-based. What we do is we take the input from that organization and a little bit from that organization and that organization, we put it all together and basically what you have is a mix of stuff that doesn't necessarily meet any need well. Confrontational consensus is all about how do we decide what is in the best interest of the business. Let's get a set of policies, 
outcomes, objectives that will be the referees, if you will, of what we need to do. And then you get these cross-functional teams together and they start to define an initiative, a product, or what have you. And when there are decisions to be made about what is a higher priority than something else, you go back to how it relates to reaching that objective. But beyond that, it's meant to get stuff on the table, right? Confrontation is not a bad thing. That's the basic underlying principle. And you encourage people to put their point of view on the table in a very direct, objective, and constructive way. And then you encourage others to put their view and you talk about it and then get to a place where you say, which one of these points of view gets us closer to the overall objective? What we've found over the years is that, look, that confrontation exists. It's just buried in the current system. And if you don't deal with it up front, you're going to deal with it at the very end when you're trying to launch that product. And it's going to be a tenfold more difficult problem to solve. So part of the methodology is get that stuff out there, talk it through, be customer focused, be objective focused. And if you do that, you can get to solutions that will unify the team and solidify your objectives and your directions much more quickly and much more effectively. Let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like Salesforce Customer 360 platform. We love Salesforce and the Customer 360 platform. So go check them out at salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Alan, are you ready? I am. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? I use a chess app and I use it all the time. I love it. It beats me on a regular basis. In fact, most of the time, but I love it. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? I live in a seafood place. I love to cook and eat uh, seafood, shrimp, scallops, things like that. What about your hidden talent or passion? I love to collect um, historical artifacts. I'm fascinated with human history, what we've done, how we've changed, and little bits and artifacts um, you know, from the past help me connect the past and the present, and it's a lot of fun. Do you, go, do you have the, uh, the, the metal detector? Are you out there uh, you know, pounding the slopes and, and finding new stuff? Uh, no, it, you know, it's more, you know, you go to these off the wall shops that are hidden in nooks and crannies and you find stuff that is just off the wall. And, and that's kind of fun. I mean, you know, the other thing that I love to do is photography. So given the current uh, crisis, it's actually been a benefit because I'm at home enough to do that as well. What's your best advice of leading during, during a crisis? Get out in front. Uh, that's the most critical thing. You have to recognize that you get your best opportunity to be a leader in a difficult situation. You've got to put yourself in the mind of the employees that depend on you. You've got to put yourself in the mind of the client that also depends on you and think from their perspective and, and be empathetic from their perspective and, and try to create solutions that help them feel more secure. 
Um, so that's the basic thing that I would say. Just and be honest with people. You, you've got to tell them when things are difficult, and you've got to tell them the sacrifices that need to be made. Because if you don't, the truth always comes out, and it becomes more painful the longer that you've misled people. So it really is get out in front, communicate, and communicate accurately, truthfully. You've been a CEO, you've been an EVP. What would be your best advice for a first-time technology leader uh, that was stepping up uh, into an EVP role? There's a natural tendency that people have to stay in their comfort zone and that you jump into a new role and in a difficult situation, you start to behave in that new role as you did in your previous role. So what made you successful okay, in that previous role might not be and probably isn't what's going to make you successful in the new role. So be mindful of that in terms of what you do in your next role. And don't be afraid to show where you have gaps, but quickly find other people to bring into your team to address those gaps and fill those gaps. Awesome. Alan, that's all we got. That's it for today. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Ian, uh, you know, this is fantastic. We're really having a good time helping our clients work things through a very difficult situation. It is hard out there. It's uncertain out there. People are overwhelmed, but that's normal in this circumstance. And we're just thankful that clients uh, trust us enough to give us the opportunity to help them through that. So thank y'all. Be safe and healthy through this process. And I hope to get the opportunity to talk to y'all again sometime. Awesome. Take care. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.